0: Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today?
1: I am P.G. Keen.
0: I am happy to be
2: talking about movies with friends.
0: First up in controversies and non Dave Chappelle. That's it, just Dave Chappelle. I'm just going to say Dave Chappelle and we'll go. We got a lot of ground to cover here. Uh, his new special on Netflix, The Closer, has garnered much angst. Was it for saying that black people are cheap and make bad decisions? Uh, or for saying he killed people with COVID to get this material down? Or for saying he liked being molested by a priest? Or for making light of the Asians getting beaten up in random attacks on city streets? Uh, or for calling himself the Magic Johnson of coronavirus? Uh, or for his lines about space Jews that downplayed the Holocaust? No! It was for none of those things. Uh, if you've been following the story, you know that it is uh, is, in fact, for his once again refusal to lay off of the transgender community, despite the fact that seemingly every cultural critic in America uh, and every every uh, person who is involved in civil rights and everything, they're all yelling at him. They're saying, you got to stop. You got to stop making these jokes. You can't do it anymore. And he says, no, I will continue to joke about what I want to joke about Um, this refusal to acknowledge uh, a protected class when it comes to humor has gotten him into hot water with Twitter, which, luckily as Chappelle notes, in his special is not a real place. More interestingly, it has gotten Netflix CEO Ted Sarandis into hot water with his own employees, leading to talks of walkouts and internal criticism and external criticism. But most interestingly, most interestingly, this has led to Netflix data being leaked, which is an, an amazingly rare thing. This never happens, folks. They jealously guard their data uh, they, to, the, to the extent where and they' and they're famously transparent too which is why this is very surprising. there's a lot of transparency within Netflix but the, the data never leaks. Uh, one of the things he talks about in his uh, in his memoirs actually is uh, how he, he there's all this transparency and he tells folks that if they leak it they could actually go to jail because it could influence stock prices and they all have stock et cetera et etc so it's all it's all very interesting that this is coming out around this special, okay? We'll talk about the data itself in a minute, but I just want to I just want to uh, first note that Sarandos and other higher-ups at Netflix have made the cardinal mistake of online outrage, and that is addressing it at all. Uh, instead of Sarandos simply saying, Chappelle Bush's boundaries, and uh, I'm a student of comedy, and I'm not interested in deciding which boundaries are acceptable to push, he has addressed it over and over and over again. He keeps sticking his, his neck out there, and it's getting cut off over and over again. Uh, as my litany of jokes above, again, those were all actual jokes from the special, which I watched, all of those things he made light of, um, Chappelle is making a theory of comedy point in this special. He is arguing against the concept of punching down. Uh, again, he makes light of everyone, everything from child sex abuse to hate crime victims to everything. Uh, there, nobody said boo about any of that, despite the fact that these are all uh, explicitly examples of punching down. He is punching down on all of these people. Um, the only... Uh, thing anybody gets upset about is when he simply refuses to stop making the trans jokes being uh, despite being told time and again that he has to do it uh, and I think that is what is driving people crazier more than anything else just his refusal to do the thing that he is being told to do he is he is willfully misbehaving and it is driving people very, very crazy. Um, there's a lot to get into here. Um, but one thing I just want to start with is Ted Sarando saying that he does not believe that art, in this case, the Chappelle special, but just in general, can lead to direct harm, which I kind of agree with, but also kind of undermines much of Netflix's marketing about how they're making the world a better place. Right, Peter?
2: Well, I certainly think that it is a little bit complicated for Netflix to say this um if they want to say that their work also can do social good at the same time um i think it's essentially right and i think the idea that it, the, like the the underlying here idea here isn't just that art doesn't lead to direct real world harm that's that's what he's that's how he has phrased it but the underlying idea is just a, a very simple one that is embedded in, uh, in the First Amendment, in the sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, you know, uh, uh, I notion that all of us learned as, as children, which is that speech isn't violence. Speech, speech can be offensive. It can be awful. It can be ugly. Um, it, can, it can hurt feelings, but it doesn't hurt people directly. And so what he is saying is is something that is contrary to uh, to a lot of what we have have, you know, heard um, over the last, let's say, decade or so amongst primarily left leaning. I I think you could also say there are some folks on the right who have made arguments that amount to this as well. But it's primarily a left leaning cohort that has basically just decided to say that that hateful speech is in. in some sense, akin to violence, and should be treated like violence, and I don't think that is correct, and I don't think that is the right way for uh, speech businesses like Netflix—that's what they traffic in—is speech, um, and I to to I don't think that's the right way for them to think, and I don't think that's the right way for sort of policymakers and you know public intellectuals to think. I I don't think that's the way that. That we should organize our society is around the notion that speech is violence. Um, well, there,
0: there, there is a there is a horseshoe theory uh, at work here, right? Where on 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 the right, you have had people for years who have said that art is can damage. Uh, Young people in particular, but can have active social harms um, in the forms of pornography or, uh, you know, gangster rap or uh, heavy metal music or whatever. And then on the left, you you now you get a lot of the same thing with regards to hate speech or punching down or whatever.
2: Uh, I yes that is correct I mean the uh, there is no side of, of, of the political spectrum here that has been perfectly consistent um when I was growing up it was definitely more the left that was def- that defended the idea uh that speech wasn't itself harmful because you had a lot of sort of conservative or at least socially conservative even if they were technically Democrats uh like Tipper Gore folks saying out that oh pop culture is causing harm to our children you have the rap music uh, um, also video games right but I mean if, it's really it's 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 striking to go back and read some of the hearings from from the 1990s about rap music, and they were literally congressional hearings in which yeah. they would like talk about Marilyn Manson and they would talk about um, some of the the rappers at the time. And you know, there uh, Joe Lieberman, a Democrat, uh, was you know out front on some of this stuff, um, but it was it was also a you know a cause for the right as well. And it is somewhat striking to see the ways that this has s- sort of crossed. Ideologically, And, you know, I, I would just uh, I, I would say a little bit jokingly, but also kind of seriously, the only people who have ever been perfectly consistent on this are the libertarians. And libertarians <laughs> have been right about this for a long time and are still right. And that's yeah, what I'm doing I mean- on this show.
0: Uh, that's fair. That's I think that's fair. And this is this is one area where I've always considered myself like this is like my most libertarian position is that that speech is good and we shouldn't try and shut people down. It's not always listen, good.
2: So it's not always like good no, but as in I, like no, but everything I'm not saying, that every I'm not person saying, has ever said is good, right? right? It's, but, the, but the solution to that, yes. the response to that is more speech and to argue with those people and to, to do the thing that we all do. And like we argue with each other when we think we're wrong. Anyway, Alyssa, Alyssa,
0: what do you make of the fact that there is this internal revolt at Netflix and and how are they uh, messing up in their handling of it? Because this is a this is a series of failures.
1: Yeah, I want to I want to go back to just for one second to the question of sort of speeches, violence, because I actually think there is a way to thread the needle um, in talking about sort of the broad impact of culture versus the specific um, impact of individual incidences of speech. Because I think it's fairly obvious that media shapes our sense, media collectively, taken collectively, shapes our sense of what is normal, right? Um, I mean, you have infinite examples of politicians, ordinary people talking about how um, art like Philadelphia or Will and Grace and the sort of accumulating compassionate images of gay people in media helped you know, create the environment in which the um, civil rights movement for marriage equality was possible that helped, you know, foster an environment in which people with HIV could be treated with greater compassion. Um, you know, in similar ways, um, you know, I, as someone who has studied a lot of depictions of the police and pop culture, it, I mean, it's overwhelmingly obvious that uh, pop culture has provided an extraordinary reputational subsidy to policing in America. Um, whether that means, you know, giving the impression that f- certain forensic tactic uh, uh, techniques are more accurate than they actually are, that the police close more cases than they actually do, et cetera. But there's very different it's very different to say that, you know, our media landscape as a whole shapes our sense of what is normal and how we act within those expectations or understandings of normalcy. and saying that, if someone you know listens to too much Marilyn Manson and goes out and shoots up his school, that Marilyn Manson is responsible for that person's actions. That you know, art that people get attached to is the equivalent of you know, sort of clear incitement. Um, and I, it's bizarre to me that Netflix can't sort of square that circle. Because, and in general, it's bizarre to me that people can't talk with that kind of nuance. But then I'm constantly prepared to be disappointed. Um yeah, in terms of what's happening at Netflix broadly, I mean, I think this is it's probably inevitable that there was going to be a cultural collision of this sort at some point or other. And that is both I think probably the inevitable result of the kind of internal culture that, you know, you talked about in introducing the segment, Sunny, but I also think that there's some tension in Netflix's mission, right? They, you know, they have signed these sort of big high profile, you know, what I'd almost call um, social impact deals. And they've doled out an enormous amount of money, to the Obamas to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, um, you know, to sort of make socially conscious content um, and have presented that as part of their mission. At the same time, It has, I think, become sort of overwhelmingly clear that a lot of what Netflix produces is, you know, commercial dreck (laughs) and that, you know, Squid Game is kind of their first, you know, almost substantial arty hit in a while. Um, They've had deals with, um, you know, Shonda Rhimes that have been sort of slow to come to fruition with Ryan Murphy that haven't really worked out. Um, they've not had the equivalent of say, orange is the new black in a long time. Um, they're relying a lot more heavily on cheaper to produce reality stuff. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I believe that Ted Sarandos is a student of comedy that he loves Dave Chappelle, that he believes he's an important voice, but you know, Netflix needs to grow its subscriber base constantly, um, to keep up its level of spending on content. It is sort of topping out in the United States, as the sort of early post-pandemic numbers suggest. And there is no world in which Netflix is going to lay down a marker and say, you know, not only will we sort of give up on Dave Chappelle because he has this, you know, sort of commitment to deliberate provocation, but we're probably not going to lay down markers on content in general because we actually need to include the broadest possible range of, you know, viewpoints and attempts to appeal to possible subscribers. We can't afford to be a subscription service for liberals. That's not a thing that they're going to do. And, you know, they can't afford to just like, they can't be HBO, right? Like they can't actually be boutique and high end and subscribe with, you know, survive with, Eight million subscribers or ten million subscribers. If Netflix is going to keep going and win this arms race, it needs to get as many people on the planet subscribing as possible. And you know, they have Netflix does not operate in China, which is kind of the big exception to um, you know Hollywood. But for example, in order to stay operational in Saudi Arabia, it yeah. you know, censored Hassan uh, Hassan Minaj, and Netflix. You know, you. you you can give Meghan Markle as much money as you want, but ultimately Netflix needs to appeal to a lot of people, and that's going to mean um, producing stuff that not only is not to a lot of subscribers' taste, but that offends some people or annoys yeah. some people. Um, well, I mean, I
0: we we saw we saw a fight over this uh, last year with the cuties, uh, or maybe that was was that even earlier this year? I can't even remember. But the the fight it was over cuties. Last year. Um, right. Which, you know, people on the right said, oh, this is horrible child pornography. How can you publish this sort of thing? And other other people push back and said, no, look, this is a this is this is a an anti child exploitation work. You know, you have to actually watch the thing to put up with it. But I mean, I, I like I guess what I, what I find really interesting about this is the internal culture at Netflix demanding that the site And the product be more censorious than uh, than it than it than it it can be to survive, really. I mean, I I just I don't I don't I don't see how they square that circle internally without simply uh, ignoring or, uh, frankly, starting to fire people who who. publicly come out and and denounce the 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 product i mean i just i i honestly know so, i don't know in how, fact, they, it, how they do it. it
2: one person i believe has already been fired well that, um, for leaking for the leaking, internal data though. right but this is the this is the difference is that this person was fired for leaking internal data not for being public about right. criticizing netflix and that's an interesting distinction there um is that they've said they, they seem to be adopting at least for the moment and lord knows this could change even by the time this podcast goes up but they seem to be adopting at this moment a you're allowed to criticize us line but you're not allowed to leak proprietary company information to the media and that actually doesn't seem like a completely crazy distinction to make to me
0: well, I think that I think that's the smartest thing to do here. When I say I like, I say I don't know what they're going to do without firing people. I don't. I don't really mean that because I think firing people just makes it worse. Actually, yeah. if you start firing everybody who criticizes you, then you then you turn uh, you turn a small problem into a big problem. The smart thing to do is just is again simply just to ignore it. Just to say we publish this thing. Uh, uh, if, if you don't like it, that's fine. You're not going to like everything that we make, and you can't. You you just you simply are going to have to live with it.
2: I mean, I, Spotify I just has had this exact same problem, basically, with Joe Rogan. It is right. it is affecting uh, a lot of companies that host uh, media personalities. Right. And there is clearly a market um, for media personalities of whether they're comedians, whether they're talk show hosts, uh, whether they are just writers who don't tow the the, the the line that like some people within large tech companies like Netflix and Spotify and Apple would like them to toe um yeah. and so those companies are going to have to decide how much it's what you know who who is more important for them to retain the, the the people who are drawing very large audiences or the however many staffers it is and it's not you know it's it's not clear to me whether it this is um A huge percentage of the Netflix staff really finds Chappelle over the line or whether it's a small percentage, I I genuinely don't know. And, or it's a whether, different, and, and it's or, a different yeah. issue of, like, depending on whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's a small faction or whether it's like really most Netflix, people who work for Netflix think this was a terrible idea and the boss is out on his, you know, out on a limb here.
1: And it'll be interesting to see there is a walkout scheduled for the 20th, how many people participate, yeah. because there's a sort of in-between space between people who, you know, a small faction who's very invested in this, a large faction that's not, but perhaps there's some percentage of that who feel obligated to show solidarity or, you know, sort of, uh, social conformity with the people for whom this is not acceptable. And it's a, it's an interesting debate to watch as someone who works in the opinion section of a major newspaper. And in fact, sort of one of the last places where a sort of broad ideological spectrum is represented in the workforce. Um, because, you know, I, one of the things I really enjoy about working for the Post is, you know, the sort of internal arguments and discussions about issues and the fact that, you know, there is a culture of dissent, sometimes fairly sharp dissent, um, uh, that goes up and sort of up and down the chain. But there's a larger commitment to the project, right? There's not a sense that we're going to achieve ideological purity or narrowness. We argue about where the margins are. But I think that kind of Culture is, you know, it's at this point in American public life, it's kind of weird. And it does not surprise me that content companies are sort of coming up against the limits of fostering a culture of dissent and a sort of broad sense of what's acceptable um, when that's just not something that a lot of workers have practiced at.
2: It's also just yeah. notable that Chappelle, um, like Joe Rogan, is not... He's not a conservative, right? He's not like yeah. a right wing guy by any means, and no. in fact, spends a bunch of this special uh, just making making jokes at the expense of poor white, um, you know, uh, people in Ohio and North Carolina of, of middle American Trump voters, yeah. and like it's quite brutal in his in his mocking of them as well. And it's so it's this doesn't just sort of play in a kind of very traditional right left uh, as as a, right, a traditional right left argument. It is something. More complex than that, and in fact, reflects the fact that not everyone actually just sort of fits into like, oh, this person is a Democratic yeah. progressive liberal, and this person is a hardcore Trump supporting conservative. There are actually a bunch of people whose politics are like they're not even just they're not even moderates either. They're somewhere in between, and they're scrambled well, I mean, and, and this is, strange because that's how people are.
0: This is, I think, the the biggest actual point from Chappelle's special is is that it is not. The, the concept of punching down is false, true equality in Chappelle's mind, and I think this is right, is the ability to make fun of everybody all the time uh, and treat everybody as equals. I mean, he explicitly talks about this in, in the special that, like, I I felt comfortable joking with my transgender friend Daphne because we all were making fun of everybody all the time. Like that. that, like... It's, it's, it's a very interesting – I you, you should watch the special. You should not just listen to uh, all of the outrage. You should actually watch it for yourself because, I mean, I, again, there's there's a very interesting moment where he goes – he does a bit on the bathroom laws in North Carolina that I think is very interesting because he's clearly he's clearly opposed to these laws. He thinks they're dumb and terrible, and nobody is talking about how the actual policy uh, things that he talks about in this lineup very much yeah. like on the nose with – uh, the the left and the uh, you know the civil rights lobby uh, uh, and how they think about this. Anyway, we're running long on this. Um, what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-controversy uh, that Dave Chappelle exists, uh, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> it's a
2: uh, listen, Apparently, a controversy. Humanity
1: is controversial. Life on the planet is controversial. Um, yet, what's going on in Netflix and their attempt to sort out their internal culture is obviously a controversy.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a controversy, and uh, it's an interesting one. And I, I hope it doesn't, uh, I hope it doesn't get boiled down to very rote uh, name calling, as it kind of appears to be headed. But we'll see, we'll see. Uh, if you enjoy the show, and who does not enjoy the show, uh, make sure to head over to atma.thesabulwark. where we're going to be talking about one of my favorite directors, Ridley Scott, uh, and which of his movies we like best, and for what reasons. Uh, speaking of Ridley Scott, on to the main event. The Last Duel. Uh, one elevator pitch for The Last Duel is something like this. It's a medieval Me Too story. Um, and while it is undoubtedly that, the eponymous combat being undertaken to resolve a claim of rape leveled by Marguerite, played by Jodie Comer, against Jacques Legree, played by Adam Driver, um, it is, a, it is in fact, much more than that. It One thing it is, is very funny, weirdly. Uh, ben Affleck and Matt Damon, uh, who also star in the movie, co-wrote the film alongside uh, Nicole Um Athlec plays a noble just below the king he's not he's not the king he's like a duke or something i don't know how french nobility works um and he does so with a sort of decadent relish He's fancy. He's a fancy lad. He's uh, and he does fancy. so with a sort of decadent relish that underscores the absurdity of his privilege. Uh, Damon, meanwhile, plays Jean de Carouge, uh, husband of Marguerite, and the wronged party here, at least as far as French law is concerned. Affleck spends much of the film sneering at Damon, annoyed by his stodginess and his low manners and his illiteracy. Um, Affleck's Duke has more fun with Driver, sharing. Count, count count Viscount, whatever He's I, a I i count. don't again frenchy frenchy mcfrenchy uh, has more fun with driver uh, sharing his orgy bed with the squire as he as count he sometimes the, does. Uh, the whole film is uh, in a way driven by decarouge's effort to gain money and respect he le- loses a parcel of land he was believed to be owed as part of marguerite's dowry to legree he is passed over uh, by Affleck's de, de alanson for i i french is the worst i i am terrible with it uh, for a captaincy in uh, in <laughs> In favor of uh, Legree, and Carouge is uh, his 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 social impotence. Really, is is the issue here? It, it's the cause of much of the humor of the film, as well as much of the drama. Um, and uh, the the trailers have kind of uh, belied all of this. Uh, also funny in a dark way is the manner with which we watch the two genders react to the events in question. While Marguerite's name is being dragged through the mud, the women all wince and look away while the men are practically lip- licking their lips at the scandal of it all. Um, it's structured in kind of a Rashomon style way that gives, uh, us the same events from three different perspectives, that of Decarouge, then Legree, uh, and then Marguerite who gets a little extra caption that says the truth. This is, this is the truth. This is the way it is. Um, And it's interesting to see the little differences between the three recountings. Again, one small one here. Um, When the sexual assault at the heart of the film begins, Legree remembers her taking off her shoes before running up the steps. Um, But in Marguerite's retelling, the camera focuses on her feet again, and we see them like falling off. They just fall off as she flees up the steps in terror. Um, It's a small difference again, but it's one that shades how each party in this event uh, understands what actually took place. The whole thing builds to a genuinely rousing and emphatic final fight, uh, which is really just a tremendous set piece. I have to say, I kind of love this movie. Alyssa, uh, did it work from your point of view?
1: It really did. And I was sort of surprised by how deeply this has stuck with me. Um, You know, it was a movie I was interested to see um, and liked while I was watching it and kind of have not been able to stop thinking about and. Part of what has been really powerful about it to me is that it takes on this question of, you know, in in contemporary discourse about sex, there is this sort of, confu- there's this kind of disbelief about the idea that someone might not know the difference between sex and rape. And yet, you know, a lot of these Me Too conversations have illustrated that there is not actually a commonly accepted definition and broad understanding of what sexual assault means, Right. You, you know, you have incidents like the essay young woman wrote about a date with Aziz Ansari that she felt like sort of got caught up in a power differential. You have California's new law saying that removing a condom from, um, you know, during sex without your partner's consent, a practice known as stealthing, is a form of sexual battery. And what is really interesting about the way The Last Duel handles this question is that It not only – so the depictions of um, Legree's Sexual Assault of Marguerite, what's interesting about the two depictions of them is not how different they are but how similar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought the detail you mentioned was really nice. You know, there's some tonal differences in the way Marguerite hears herself saying no. You know, she sort of sees herself afterwards with, you know – like tears and mucus sticking to the bedspread as, you know, after she gets up, Um, you know, there are sort of, there are all these sort of tiny questions of degree, but that, but what the movie does in the third of it, that's in Legree's perspective is it explores how he is initiated into this elite sexual culture that involves sort of double talk, that involves Uh, you know, sort of violent form of play as a form of seduction. Um, You know, there is this moment where he, you know, in talking to his lawyer, he says, you know, I mean, she's a lady. She made the, you know, the the usual protests. Um, You understand how he has become inculcated in a definition of sex where, you know, consent is inherently blurred, where violence is sort of inherent and force are kind of inherently part of the um the way sex is carried out. And you know, I think the movie leaves space for the idea that Carug- that um, LeGree is kind of using this as cover, but um it also leaves open the possibility that he genuinely believes that this is sex, that so this is how consent works. And so it, you know, it suggests that in the 635 years since the stool actually took place, we have not settled some of these questions uh, in a way that we, you know, kind of think would be part of our progress towards modernity. Um, and, you know, it's I think it's easy to look at this movie and say, oh, you know, this is kind of shoehorning this into the Me Too debate, but I actually went back and read the um, the nonfiction book that it's based on these parallels. you know, They're really clear. This is not, you know, um, Affleck and Damon and Nicole Holstner who wrote the third of the movie from Marguerite's perspective, just sort of shoehorning in a bunch of modern ideas about sex and consent. You know, these debates have been ongoing and unsettled for, you know, six and a half centuries. And that is kind of unsettling and interesting in a way that You know, to a certain extent, we haven't solved all of these questions about, you know, what sex and good sex looks like and how consent works because they're hard. Um, And I found it just sort of interestingly, you know, kind of ideologically sly to a certain extent. Right. Mm -hmm. That it, you know, it's, it's theoretically a medieval Me Too movie. But it also undercuts our sense of progress and specifically is very condemnatory of an elite sexual culture um, that is, you know, kind of decadent and ugly and geared towards making sure men get and can take what they want uh, within a permissive framework um, that in this sort of one case gets constricted, but not in most.
2: Yeah. Peter, what did you what did you make of this? I really liked this movie. And like Alyssa, I've thought about it quite a bit since watching it. In fact, I, I think I like the movie even more the more, like, having thought about it, right? It's one of these movies that has grown in my estimation um, over time because it, it sort of has revealed itself in its various layers to me. And so, you know, like Al- Alyssa said, this is a movie about perspective. But it's also a movie, you know, and, and Alyssa, you got into this, to some extent, it's a movie about how culture shapes perspective. And obviously— the subject the that it, the primary thing that it is about is rape and sex and right and so the question that the movie raises without quite actually stating is whether or not Legree understood what he was doing as rape and it leaves the it, it, we we of course understand it as rape the movie leaves no question for the viewers but what it does is it says, maybe he didn't really fully know or didn't allow himself to know, because what he was doing was playing out a cultural script, one that was familiar to him, both explicitly from the games that he played in Ben Affleck's Count's orgy bedroom, but also one that was given to him by other men in power at the time. And so there's this bit um, that I think is really important to understanding the movie before we get to the duel itself, we're in a courtroom with the King and they're arguing their cases, right? It's the two men, uh, arguing against each other. Um, and one, somebody from, I don't know, the jury or some official person explains, well, you know, uh, she felt, pl- she, she had a, uh, excuse me, she, uh, conceived a child, became pregnant out of this. And you, and according to their theories at the time, this is what they're saying to be clear, uh, You cannot conceive a child if you don't feel pleasure. And if you feel pleasure during a sexual encounter, well, then by definition, it can't be rape. And he says in a line that is just totally on the nose in some ways, he said that this court official just says that's just science. Now. We could argue, and people did, in fact, in my Twitter feed, argue about whether the idea of science as we think about it now is a is a modern one that they would have understood at all. Um, but that is that line is there for a reason, because what it's telling us is that this movie is, yes, of course it's about sex and rape and consent and all of those things, and of course it's about perspective, but it's also just about elite systems of power and how, how elites basically sort of create uh create uh, you know you they use the law they use the in this case the crown they use the religion and they use the cover of science to say to justify the things that they want to do that end up taking uh, that end up abusing and sort of uh, taking power over other people who who don't have it and so i think this movie is 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 just super interesting in that it is like there's a there's a very conventional left leaning right like you know sort of like this was rape they didn't even understand it how barbaric they were that reading is correct. That reading, I'm not saying that reading is wrong, but there's another one sort of lurking beneath the surface that's like actually all of these systems of control and power that maybe we still have today that say things like "that's just science" and "this is how yeah. science works." That's just people using the cover of institutional authority to justify the stuff they already want. Can we
0: get. can we discuss uh, Ben Affleck's performance in this for a minute? Because I I I, I have to say. I, I have not I have yeah, not your was been as surprised by a performance in recent I, I cannot remember the last time I was this surprised by a, a performance specifically in recent years. Let me put it that way because in in the trailer he gets one line and he sounds he has this ridiculous accent and I'm like they're they're clearly hiding something with Ben Affleck here and they were but not the thing I thought they were hiding they they the the way this the way he is portrayed in this film the way he plays the the count is. Almost like it's from another movie, but that is also kind of the point of his his role here is that he exists on a different plane of accountability and a different plane of of you know behavior than everybody else in this film. And he's still, I mean, he's still below the king. We don't see the king, but he is he is essentially acting with the king's power sort of more as an, or less. Yeah, he's
1: a, an, an extension yeah. of the king. And
0: I want to I want to I, I, I want to specifically get what you guys make of this performance. And if again, if we are taking this as a kind of medieval me, too, is he what is what would his what would his position be in the world of Hollywood? Is he like a it is he a studio head? What is he?
2: Is he like a, a high powered producer? I'm like I'm kind of I'm- there has been some suggestion that Affleck and uh, Damon participated in this, at least sure. in part out of guilt over sure. there working with Harvey Weinstein, and so I you but know, he's not know what to say that's what he is, but that doesn't seem completely insane to suggest to think that there is some right. some sort of relationship there though I but I also just don't know and you know that's that's very it's totally yeah, speculative.
1: I, I'm sort of hesitant to come up with a comparison there because. You know, it's it's so inexact, and the sort of governmental power that he wields, especially given the state of France at the time. I mean, Charles came to power extremely young. The France was essentially ruled by um, his uncles, and he eventually went completely insane and became convinced that he was made of glass. But that's totally separate. Um, but cool, I think us. that he, you know. He embodies this idea that there are people who are so sort of sophisticated and powerful that they are exempt from the ordinary moral rules. And, you know, Peter, one thing you and I talked about after seeing this movie is that there's a really interesting sort of urban-rural clash here, right? I mean, there are, there's the sort of deliberately deliberate mocking of Dick Rouge who can't read, can't write. Um, there's there's also a very interesting scene where Legree is at a dinner that the Count is throwing and is reading from um, the Romance of the Rose in the original Latin, and that's a text that was you know sort of an elite favorite at the time, but also was controversial. I mean, writers like Christine de Pizan um, condemned it for sort of misogyny and a violent view of sexuality, and there is definitely this sense in the movie that you know, Pierre is a person, you know, from whom a sort of sexual culture and a theory of power flow and who views himself as operating just on a different scale, not only in questions of, you know, kind of in in indoctrinating Legree and what sex means, but in terms of his ability and authority to judge other people. Um, You know, one of the things we learned that is that Legree has gained favor with the count by kind of setting his affairs in order and, um, you know, actually collecting his tax revenues, which is how the count gets his hands on the land that de Carrouge thinks that he's entitled to. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of going on here a little bit, but there's.
2: He's a high competence, yeah. technically well, adept, bureaucrat. Well, <laughs> educated. He is a tech worker, right? Except like, that he's kind uh, uh, of
1: not, right? Because we actually learned that he's terrible at administering. He's like a terrible administrator. He actually, I mean, the interesting parallel here is actually, I don't know if the two of you have read, um, uh, Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell trilogy, but, you know, um, Pierre is sort of like the equivalent of Henry VIII, you know, he is this person whose kind of personal whims and tastes, have enormous influence and then Legree is his Thomas Cromwell figure the person who comes in and is the sort of ruthlessly efficient administrator who uh, yeah
2: yeah i thought he, th- Oh, sorry. sorry i thought you were talking the, about yeah, 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 yeah. Is the, is, it, he's effectively like you know a, a coder or a, like a you know a, a, a kind of producer working within the studio system who like always delivers the movie that sort of thing the performance that ben Affleck's reminded me of most was um was of If you guys have seen True Romance, and you remember at the, in the third act of the movie, uh, Christian Slater ends up trying to sell a huge bag of, I think it's Coke or some sort of drugs, to um, to a movie producer uh, played by uh, Saul Rubenek, um And he has sort of rented out this hotel room, and he's kind of, he's both powerful and sleazy at the same time, and just sort of used to having everything uh work towards, you know, towards his whims and be delivered to him when he you know snaps his fingers. Um, and I do think there's there is. Without wanting to say that it's definitely based on some specific person or, or anything like that, there is a sense of kind of Hollywood like power in that he is somebody who can make things happen, but he mostly spends time pleasuring himself, enjoying being. Fancy and then hires somebody else who's the high competence person to do yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, he's a
1: figure of decadence. Um, to, and the ways in which, you know, people who see themselves as operating on a different plane, I think, are very easily prone to falling into decadence and self indulgence um, and decay, even and continue to exert those values through the cultural norms that they set, even as those. Behaviors should undermine their claim to being an elite. Yeah.
0: Uh, All right. So what do we think of The Last Duel? Thumbs up or thumbs down?
2: Alyssa? Thumbs up. Peter? Thumbs up. It's a good Ridley Scott movie in the spirit of so many good Ridley Scott movies.
0: We'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, Thumbs up for me as well. Uh, Very good movie. I, I have to say, again, I was very surprised by this movie. Do not let the advertisements, which are weirdly dour... And dire uh, dissuade you from going to see this. It's it is a it's a far more interesting film than the uh, ads have let on. Um, I, we didn't even talk about the action in this scene. The which, calls, which, which we, the, the duel, the duel at the end calls to mind the best of Ridley Scott's action work from Gladiator or or Black Hawk Down. I mean, it just is. It's very it's very very well done. So go see it. It's 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 exciting. It'll make you think. Everyone wants to think. Um, uh, That is it for today's show. A programming note. Our lovely host, Alyssa, is going on maternity leave starting next week. Don't worry. The show will go on. We've lined up a guest host who will be filling in for... Uh, the next fourteen days—that's as much maternity leave as you get, Alyssa. I'm sorry. That's it. That's it. Just you know, two weeks. That's. The... She'll be back. She'll be back when she's ready to come back. A couple months. We'll see her again. Um, but we've got uh, Chris Orr coming up, who Alyssa, Peter, and I know well from DC area screenings, uh, and who you might know from The Atlantic and Forbes. Uh, anyway, uh, Alyssa, we we will we we will miss you. Uh, we will see you again soon. Do you want to say anything to the people before you go? Tell
1: um. Them, you know, tell them, I tell them anything. This podcast is the highlight of my week. I love these guys and to all our really wonderful listeners. Um, And I am sorry. I'm not going to get to talk about Dune and the French Dispatch with you because they're both real great. Um, But I will be back as.
0: How dare you. Spoilers.
1: I will be back as soon as it feels right to be back. And um, I am just really, really excited that. Movies are now a part of our lives again, and I can't wait to talk about them with my friends who include all of you.
0: Yay! Uh, All right, that's enough sappiness. If you love this week's show, make sure to check out our uh, members-only bonus feed on Ridley Scott's body of work. It's going to be Alyssa's last episode, so go go sign up for a membership if you haven't done that already. Uh, Make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. Um, If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at SunnyBunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week.